0: one of the key issues we discussed at the Council of Elders regarded faith and healing. We had very fine meetings, and I think that was already mentioned. There was a great deal of unity and love, and I appreciate that. We do have tremendous love and unity among the ministry as a whole. Very, If any exceptions are out there, I don't even know about it. Having gone through a lot of defections over the years, I'm certainly sensitive to those things, but we have had an unusual degree of love and warmth and unity in the ministry, and it certainly was impacted in this Council of Elders. And we discussed a great deal of topics, but one of the main ones was because the great number of people we have had who have had terrible sicknesses and have died, many of them, as you know, Mr. Bob Howington, down in in, uh, Atlanta, near that area, and died. And then Mrs. Lowe died. And then going out west from there, Mrs. Hall died, all of cancer. Then coming up this way, we had Mr. Wayne Pyle died. And then more recently, terribly, Mrs. Bonjour died. And these are all very fine people. I don't know any of them had any terrible problem at all. They're very dedicated people, but God allowed that. Some of them were up in their 70s, of course. And I know our first college physician, Dr. Ralph E. Merrill, at the beginning of Ambassador College, a very close friend of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, said that once you're past 70, you're living on borrowed time. And we know that. And yet some of these people were not 70 yet, and they still died. And so we know that we do need more faith and more healing in the church of God. There's just no question about that. So we did discuss that, and I wanted to talk about that today because that's obviously very much on my mind because of my own wife lying at home right now and very ill. I was going to talk about that three weeks ago, but I myself was kind of deeply shaken and hurt by she had a downturn that particular time, and I asked Mr. Hernandez to take my place, and he gave a very fine sermon but I certainly wanted to get this while it's on our minds because it is one of the most important things I think we're facing as a church. Brethren, in the early days, Mr. Armstrong had a radiant faith. He really did. That's one of the things that hit me and others who got to know him back in those years. He radiated faith. You just knew here was a man of faith, and he really had that to a great extent. And we had a great number of healings just all through the church. We had hundreds of healings. People would be healed so often at the Feast of Tabernacles. Others would be healed, of course, in the local churches. Others would be healed through the anointed cloths. And most of you know that the Apostle Paul was guided by God Almighty to anoint cloths with olive oil as a symbol of God's Spirit. Instead of him being there, that little cloth would go out and people would apply that cloth and people would be healed. And we found that through those anointed cloths, About one-third of the people were healed almost immediately. Another third were healed over weeks and months to follow. We couldn't always be sure why. God doesn't always tell us why he does those things. And another third may never have been healed at all. And yet the same ministers, and Mr. Armstrong asked Dr. Hay and me a couple times together, and several times apart where I would just be there with Mr. Armstrong alone, or Dr. Hay was, he and I were the main Bible teachers in those days after Mr. Armstrong turned the theology department over to us. So one or the other or both of us would be there anointing those claws and we gained the same prayer with the same olive oil at the same time, you know what I mean, over the same claws. Why did God heal some people and not? God knows. Sometimes it's a matter of faith. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And that's part of it. Other times God has certain purposes that we don't know and we will know and we will understand later. I know that people like Mr. John O'Gwen, who was one of the most faithful and dedicated men I've ever known, died. And he was only 56 years old. He had not yet reached the three score and ten. And of course, Mr. Carl McNair died, and he was 66 years old, 10 years older, but he'd not reached the three score and 10. And Mr. Randy Gregory was a very dedicated, very fine man, I understand, from every indication. My wife and I stayed in their home a couple nights years ago, and somehow God allowed him to be executed, in a sense, in that terrible tragedy back near Milwaukee, which you all know about it, where several died. God allows things that He doesn't always tell us all the reasons till later. He allows things happen in our lives, to test us, to be sure where we stand. And we do need to understand that. And so I think it's important that you think about what's happened in the church, what happened in the apostolic days. Jesus sent the apostles out. Later, as I'll read you, He sent 70 others out. 35 teams of young men two men on a team, and he said, in each case, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Healing the, go- healing the sick went a- right along with preaching the gospel over and over and over, and that was part of Christ's ministry. But in the liberal years of the 1970s, that faith in God for healing and many other things began to fade away. We had some smart alecks come along who got very intellectual, and they began to read all kinds of Protestant ideas about theology. They jumped the track. Other people got disillusioned because of certain problems of one or two leading ministers in the church, and that disillusioned them. And They didn't realize you've got to look beyond the faults of one or two men and know that God is God and whether Mr. Armstrong makes a mistake or Ted makes a mistake or I make a mistake or Herman Hay makes a mistake or anyone else, they should have thought back then. The Sabbath still begins Friday evening at sunset and Almighty God is still in charge. And you've got to believe what God says. And as I look back on the 64 years that I've been in the work of God... Because I came to Ambassador College as a student about 64 years and two months ago. And was baptized after four or five months. But 64 years ago, I was certainly very much in the work. Already a good friend of Ted. Already gone over to Mr. Armstrong's house. We all got to know each other very, very well in those days. We were so small. We didn't know what was going on. And I have seen over and over that those people who learned to trust God regardless are much, much better off. People that are always asking the what-if questions and have their mind on some technical point or looking for the loose brick. Those are the people that generally fall away. I can start naming some. Other people try to exalt themselves. They always want to be the most important. They often are the ones that fall away too. And I've seen that over and over again as I saw different ones I can name who try to rebel against Mr. Armstrong And push themselves forward and take over. And that vanity destroyed them. Because they then began to rebel against the one God was using. And that of course hurt them too. You've got to look beyond man to God. You've got to believe in Almighty God. That he is there. He is eternal. He will keep his word. That's what faith is all about. Are you going to trust God? Or distrust God? That's what faith is all about. Yet many lost that faith and began to fade away. Many of the brethren then began to go to doctors first, right away. And if they went to a minister for anointing, that was later on or not at all. That was kind of a second thought. Whereas in the past, the very first thing would call the doctor, call the minister, I mean, right away. That's what people did. They had that faith in God. It was a living thing. They could see that their neighbors in the church were healed, little children were healed, People were healed of everything. As I've told you in the past, I haven't talked about this very much, so I'll tell it today. But the first thing I was ever healed of was warts. I had warts all over the back of my fingers. And Mr. Armstrong preached on healing in the first year I was in Ambassador College. And I should have had myself anointed for my eyes. That was more serious than my warts, frankly, if I look back on it or other things. But I just knew about the warts being a real problem. My glasses got me by. I didn't worry about that. And I would take hot matches and burn them into the warts. I was trying to be a tough guy and try to kill the warts that way. And I put lemon juice on the warts. My mother took me to the doctor and he put the electric needle leg you'd put right down in the core of the wart. That was supposed to kill the wart. Five or six things. I used to cut the warts off with razor blades until they would bleed. And my mother got hysterical. She said, you're going to bring cancer on yourself. Well, I would put iodine right in there, try to kill the wart. I have the healthiest warts west of the Mississippi. I really did. They just would not go away. They kept coming back. Mr. Armstrong preached on healing, and I went to him to be anointed just for warts, which it seems kind of, you know, not important, but at least they were important to me. And each morning, as I would get up in the third floor of Mayfair, the student dorm, my feet would hit the floor, and I'd look and see if the warts were still there. They were always there. They did not go down gradually. One day, after six or eight weeks, about a couple of months, give or take, I woke up and looked at the warts, and they were totally gone. And again, sincerely, brethren, I've told you some of you know this, but I looked under the sheets, I looked under the the floor, I thought, where did the warts go? I don't know. God simply disintegrated them. So they were all gone all of a sudden. Maybe he just caused the body to just swallow them all up. God healed. And that was his sign to me, among others, that he was God. And he was there. I have found, again, over my 64 years in the church, in the work, that often God will give a sign or two at the beginning of your Christian life to encourage you, to show you that he's there. Later on, he may not do that to the same degree because he knows that you know and he knows that you know that, you know, and he tests you. He can't test your faith when you're a baby. you may not have any faith. Later on, he may test your faith by not healing you right away. I've told you again and again about Howard Clark who sat a quadriplegic, wound from the Korean War, sat in a wheelchair years right over here from the speaker's point of view, Suddenly, over Pentecost 1958, Dick Armstrong prayed for him. He was up the very next day, walking around, totally healed. The woman with the withered arm we met on the baptizing tour had grown up, brought her Baptist friend who agreed she'd seen her that she knew that all her life, had seen these this withered arm. Anointed cloth. Do anointed cloths work? This woman had an anointed cloth for Mr. Armstrong. Suddenly, he, she didn't just sprout out. But gradually, the arm was healed by God over the next few months. just grew right out. Many people like that, without me telling you all these other stories, I could name five or ten more, as you know. I don't want you to get tired of my stories. These are part of my life. I've seen these people, talked to these people, knew these people. These things happened. Almighty God is alive, and he is the healer. And boy, we in the church have got to really understand that and develop an atmosphere of faith and Christ, ask Christ to build an atmosphere of faith in this church, through us and what we do, and through His Holy Spirit. Because if we don't, brethren, Almighty God tells us in the prophecies, back in in Leviticus 26, there are going to be terrible fevers and wasting disease come on people. And wasting disease describes not only AIDS, but one of the greatest wasting diseases you can imagine is cancer. Some of our own brethren have it, it. just get weaker and weaker and the whole body comes apart. That is a curse. We need to understand that. Yet some of our finest people in the church, I've already named several of them, died of that very disease. Were they worse than the rest of you? No. Some of them were better off than you are spiritually, I'm sure. But God allowed that. And so we need to understand the need for healing and the need for faith. That doesn't guarantee every one of us is going to be healed right away, but it does guarantee that we will be healed in God's time. Mr. Armstrong said over and over, the time God heals and the way is up to God. Usually healing is for this life, but there are times God will allow the person to die. Certainly when you're getting older, he allows everyone to die. What if I get up to be 87 or 95 and I keep getting the minister to anoint me every time I have a problem? So I rush real quick and beat God so I can't die. No, you don't beat God. Someday you die of something. But he will heal you if you've been anointed in the resurrection. Is that a cop-out? No, that is not a cop-out. You young people, that is not a cop-out. God does not need a cop-out. His name is El Shaddai. He will do what he says but he will not always do it in the way we think or the time we think. So we deeply need to understand that. And back in Matthew 24, verse 7, if you want to turn to some of these scriptures with me here, I've referred to Leviticus 26, and the disease epidemics prophesied to come on modern Israel. And in Matthew chapter 24, you find here, of course, in this Olivet Prophecy, That he talks about it to this chapter myself the various nations will rise against another kingdom against kingdom verse seven and there will be famines pestilences that means disease epidemics and earthquakes in various places and of course the account in luke says great earthquakes not just normal earthquakes at the time of the end there are going to be terrible disease epidemics and great earthquakes. There will be such disease epidemics that the medical community will be overwhelmed. You say, well, go to a doctor. Well, it's not wrong to go to a doctor, depending on the circumstances. You have to decide when and how. But they'll be overwhelmed, just like they are in the Philippines right now. There's so many people wanting help they can't can't even get to all of them, let alone treat them all. It's going to be like that. Roads will be blocked. Thousands will be wanting help. They can't do it. Who can do it? should I? He can do it. He will do it. He is the healer. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our high tower. He is our healer. Yavi Rofika, the healing God. That is one of his names. So we have to really get back to that and understand that. Often when we talk about health and healing, Well, then we want to talk about to people about, you know, the seven laws of radiant health. And I spent about a third of my sermon several months ago on that, and we should do that. That's not wrong, but brethren, when you're really, really sick, you may need to be healed. It's a little late to be, you know, drink your carrot juice and, and do all the health food things. You need forgiveness and you need healing now. And God knows we have all broken God's spiritual laws. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all broken His physical laws. And there are times we need healing. Supernatural healing from the great God of creation. So let's understand that. And we need to focus on that today and see what is the mind of God. Because certainly the Bible is the mind of God. Brethren, healing is a vital part of the gospel the very word gospel means good news and continually Christ showed that if you turn back to Matthew 4 turn with me to some of these scriptures it'll mean more to you if you read them and get them out of your own Bible Matthew chapter 4 and beginning in verse 23 it talks at the very beginning of what Christ was doing now Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people sometimes we've had new diseases come out leukemia was a new name they put on certain types of problems years ago it was new back then can God heal leukemia of course can God heal Epstein Barr some other fancy name they put on something of course he can can God heal eggs of course he can can God heal cancer Yes, he can, and he has, and he will. If we as a church get back to God, we will see more healings. And we've got to be- develop an attitude of seeking God, of crying out to God, of not being laid to sin and taking things for granted. And we've got to beseech God for faith and courage to truly trust in God. And when we do that, we will begin to see more divine healings. Jesus healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. He healed them all. Their indication is everyone was healed. And great multitudes followed him from these various places and so they saw the power of God because Christ was healing. All the other ministers did not heal with that same power, because Christ had an unusual measure of God's Spirit. We see that. And yet, as you read the book of Acts, you'll see that there were healings, there were demons being cast out, all through the apostles continued that ministry. Then you turn from Matthew 4 to Matthew 8 now, if you turn with me over to chapter 8 of the book of Matthew, chapter 8. And here in Matthew chapter 8, it shows uh how Christ again was healing and shows when Jesus had come to Peter's house. Verse 14, he saw Peter's wife's mother. Peter was not a celibate pope. Peter was a married man. He's supposed to be the first pope. He was a married man who had a mother-in-law. She was lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her Then she rose and served them. He touched her hand, the laying on of hands. God works through the laying on of hands, through human instruments. And so he healed her immediately. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. He just cast these demons out. He didn't argue with them. He just ordered them out, and they came out because he had faith. And he healed not some, but all who were sick. Why? That it might be fulfilled which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, and turn back to Isaiah 53, verse 4, that passage. It's predicted way ahead of time in Isaiah. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So when Christ was beaten with those lashes in the early morning hours before he was taken out and hung on that cross, that terrible beating of God in the flesh was to pay for our physical sins. His shed blood on the cross paid for our spiritual sins. But yes, I believe what Mr. Armstrong said. We break physical laws. You can call it transgressions, but it's sin in a sense. God says we're to glorify him in our body. And if you don't do that, wittingly or unwittingly, often we do it unwittingly, we don't mean to, And many times, many of us have grown up in a very polluted world. I spent about 40 years of my life in Los Angeles. I was breathing polluted air. Could you help that? No, not unless you moved out of Los Angeles or you got a gas mask or something. You know what I mean. We've we've been drinking polluted water. We've been eating manufactured foodless food. We've been doing these bad things all of our lives. That doesn't mean that we're all bad spiritually. It just means we, some of us have been more careless than we should have been. Yes, we know that. We need to think about that, repent of that. But when we're really sick, we really need forgiveness. That's the time to ask God to supernaturally intervene because he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. You didn't say that Christ gave her a lecture on eating, breaking carrot juice or having health food or something. He healed her, and that's the way it was all the way through. So it's important to eat good things. I'm not trying to put that down. I'm just saying when people are already really sick and dying, they need supernatural healing, and we must not play that down or play games with what Jesus Christ did. He did do that. He suffered a horrible scourging, and if you read about that scourging in the histories and the commentaries, They used to bend a man over and whip him and whip him with lashes beyond 40 until his skin was raw, bleeding, and it says Jesus began to look almost inhuman. He had gashes all over his face, and when he staggered under that cross, it may have been because they hit him with their fists, they hit him with clubs, he may have had a detached retina, maybe burst eardrums from them beating and hitting and slapping them all over. And as he staggered to his feet, he started to fall over. They let another man carry his cross. This man who was covered with blood from that horrible scourging. He did that to pay for our physical mistakes so that by his stripes we were healed if we put our faith in that. And we've got to really do that, brethren, a lot more than we are. And I hope all of us can understand that. Then we go now, if you would, back to chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2. They brought a paralytic to Jesus lying on a bed and seeing their faith. If you read the account, I think it's in Mark. They let the paralytic right down through the ceiling. They broke up the tiles and lowered him down. So he really knew they had faith to do that, seeing their faith. You see, faith is involved. He said to the paralytic, "'Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven.'" So sin is forgiven. There has been sin involved, not necessarily spiritual sin. This man may not have been out committing adultery or getting drunk, but he may have been very careless with his body. We don't know that. It doesn't make any difference. God will forgive that sin. But go and learn what this means. That is, their mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So I'm sorry, I jumped over here to the other part of the... uh, another column. Anyway, he said, your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said, this man blasphemes. How could he dare say your sins are forgiven? This young 30 or 31 year old man. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Here's the key, brethren. Read this verse carefully. For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? Healing involves the forgiveness of sin. You get your spiritual sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. You get your physical sins forgiven through the sacrifice, through the the lashes that came across Christ's back in that horrible scourging. So that involves that same thing. But that you may know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he didn't say, I'll forgive your adultery or your murder or your evil thoughts. He said, wise, take up your bed and go to your house. He forgave the physical effect that came on the man for whatever reason. Healing and the forgiveness of sin are all part of the same thing. They're all part of the gospel. They're all part of what Christ suffered for. And if we don't brand that in our brain, more of us, and you brethren down, I hope, in you know, Tasmania and your brethren down in Perth, Australia and Sydney and all the other areas of Cape Town and Johannesburg and London and Toronto and around the world, get this. Brand this in your brain and all your brethren across the United States. We stubborn Israelites have got to get this branded in our brain. Healing is the forgiveness of sin and it's all part of the gospel. And if we don't really learn to understand that and believe that and focus on that, we are not going to have the number of healings that we would like to have. Jesus said over and over, you read it, I don't have time to read it, over and over, according to your faith, be it unto you, when he would heal people. So certainly the person normally has to have faith, not just the minister. There were cases when Jesus healed people just to show he was God in the flesh. I know that, but that was unusual. Not normally. Normally, he would say, according to your faith. Then you turn to chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10. And so he called the 12 disciples and he gave them power. Who were these great powerful men? They were a bunch of young fishermen and tax collectors that were following Christ. Most of them, apparently, the indication is about his age. There were probably most of them in their early 30s. And he gave these young men power over unclean spirits, over demons, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of disease. It doesn't make any difference to God. Understand that. All kinds of disease and all kinds of sickness. Now, the names of the apostles are first Simon. First of all was Peter's designated, obviously, first many times as the leader. And he sent them out. And he said in verse 7, As you go, preach, number one, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven of the kingdom of God. Number two, heal the sick. That's the next thing he said to do as part of their ministry, as part of the gospel message. Preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, which is also part of healing, cast out demons. That's number three. You might say, what about raise the dead? Well, if you have a margin in your Bible, as I do, a footnote, it says, M, which is the majority text, omits that phrase. Jesus did raise the dead, but that is not apparently part of what he told them to do. I think it's helpful to know that. So his main message to them was preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, those three things over and over and over as you read through the gospels. You will see that. Sometimes he says, cleanse the lepers, but again, that's a part of healing. So it's the three things. Number one, preach the gospel. Number two, heal the sick. Number three, cast out demons. That's what they were told to do. And God shows that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight. So he would certainly want his faithful ministers to do the same thing. And in his ministry, Mr. Armstrong did do the same thing. And many of us were taught by Mr. Armstrong and had to cast out demons, and we had to face demons, and we had to face people with terrible sicknesses. I remember the doctor, Han and I were sent over to Murphy House, the girls' residence one summer. Mr. Armstrong was gone on a trip somewhere, and he and I were the only leading ministers there. And the girls in this woman's dormitory were not just young, mixed-up girls. There were some older young women there. Their dorm monitors had been there, had been converted for a number of years. And the girls were seeing drawers going back and forth. Windows were going up and down, tapping noises. They weren't lying. They weren't just emotional. It was happening. Demons were there. We had known that a certain man had been there named Wit. I won't go further with that. I thought that was interesting. His name was Wit. He didn't have very good wit. He let himself be influenced by demons. But at any rate, those demons stayed right there. And Herman Hay and I went around Murphy House. We laid our hands on the walls, as we'd heard Mr. Armstrong describe how he did one time when a house was infested with demons, and we prayed that God would cast those demons out. And he did. And there was no more of that. And there were several girls, not just one emotional girl. They had seen this type of thing. Demons were there. I've had a number of encounters with demons over the years. When you're dealing with a demon, you don't talk to the the person. You talk to the spirit that's in that person's brain. The spirit is in charge, a spirit personality. You have to deal with that, that spirit. But we didn't talk to anyone. We just cast the demons out of Murphy House. And they never came back, so far as I know. So, anyway, he told the disciples here what to do. Then, of course, you go down to Luke, if you would, Luke chapter 10. Let's turn from Matthew 10 to Luke 10. And we find here it wasn't just the 12 apostles. After these things, Luke 10, verse 1, the Lord appointed 70 others also. So you have 82 young men. You have 70 here, then you have the 12 apostles, so that's 72. And we know that certainly uh, Paul and Barnabas and Philip and Stephen, so you get very quickly up to 86, there may have been over 100 young men doing these things, even much more than that, we don't know. But here were 35 teams of young men sent out two by two. Were they deeply converted? No, they were not converted at all. The Holy Spirit hadn't even come yet till the day of Pentecost. They simply were designated by Christ to do this job. And he sent them out two by two and he said the harvest is plenty great but the labors are few. Pray that God will send more labors. And he said then in verse uh, 8, turn to verse 8, whatever said you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick. He commanded them to do that, heal the sick who were there, and say to them, the kingdom of God. So they were to preach the kingdom of God, and they were to heal the sick. Well, did they cast out demons? Christ didn't say it right there. Just a loop didn't record it. Because notice down in verse 17, when the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they did do the third thing. They did cast out demons. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from he- like lightning from heaven. He'd been there when God passed Satan out of his heaven at one point. Behold, he told them, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. They were protected from snakes and scorpions supernaturally and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, so here's the lesson to us, brethren, and the lesson to any of our ministers who have given this power. We're not to get the big heads. Well, I'm a big shot. I'm casting out demons. No, we're not a big shot. Here a whole bunch of young men not even converted yet did that. We are God's servants. We are the bond slaves of Jesus of Nazareth. So you better rejoice if you're going to rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that you're written in the book of life. You could be grateful, of course, that you have this power to help people, but that's not the thing to get puffed up about. Then you turn to Acts chapter 8. Turn with me, if you would, to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. And here you find a young man who'd been ordained in the previous chapter as a deacon. Remember how they ordained Philip and Stephen as deacons? Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Say, oh, that's wrong, some of our detractors say. You can't preach Christ, you've always got to say the gospel of the kingdom of God. No, it doesn't say that. Christ is part of the gospel. He is the king of that coming kingdom. That's what they emphasize, he preached Christ to them. And so then, multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So God did bear witness of his word. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Can you imagine the joy that reverberates through our whole church if a number of our brethren who are suffering right now of these diseases were supernaturally healed? Please, brethren, cry out for that. Cry out that God would heal Fitzroy Greenman. Cry out that God would heal Mr. Rod King. Cry out that God would heal my wife, Cheryl. Cry out that God would heal Mr. McNair's brother, Peter, who's a very fine young man who's dying, probably if it's not healed, of brain cancer. And many others ask God, our Father, to heal these people and know that He is God. If we do our part, He will begin to heal because He is the healer. We must not rot water that down. That's what they did. That is the message that is all through the Gospels and the book of Acts. Then you turn to Acts 19, if you turn there with me, the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, and here we find the example of the anointed cause. It says in verse 11, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, you know, little, little claws, were brought from his body, where he laid hands on them, his body undoubtedly by his hands, were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the unclean spirits, the evil spirits went out of them. And then it shows how some self-appointed Jewish exorcists tried to say they were going to cast out demons. It didn't work because God was not with them. He was with, of course, Paul, and he was with Mr. Armstrong when he anointed these claws. And I had personally talked to people who were healed supernaturally by these claws, many of them, including, of course, this woman who had had her arm withered just hanging like a rope, about one fourth the size of her normal arm, and just started growing right out again after Mr. Armstrong sent her an anointed cloth. And Raymond Manera and I met her on the baptizing tour back in 1951. And I told you about that a number of times. God is the healer and he backs this up. Again, I told you, and I saw it. I talked to the ladies who got the responses. I checked with mail answering. I'm in Missouri, you know, where you, you, you question sometimes, the show me state. So I'd go around asking questions in the early days. Well, what happened? Did anyone here respond to these things? And I would hear the answer. And I, it wasn't an exact percentage. Now, don't get me wrong. Mr. Ames is the only one who's going to give an exact percentage. He'll say that 93.4% of you are paying attention this afternoon, but the rest of you are not. I'm kidding. He gives a percentage. I'm kidding. But, of course, he's kidding when he says that. But about, about one-third of the people were healed right away, we estimated, About one third seemed to be writing in six weeks or six months later and were healed. Another third we never heard from at all or else heard in some cases they were not healed or they died. Why? As I said, the same prayer by the same men using the same bottle of olive oil over the same kind of clause, a scientific experiment, it was perfect. The conditions were, were, were unique, were all the same. The only difference was what God's will was in different cases and also faith. Some, that's one of the biggest single conditions God talks about, but certainly there are other conditions as well. As some of our leading men like Carl Manier and John O'Gwen died, and I've seen how they have had people, they healed, they blessed them, they served them, they built them, and for whatever reason God allowed some men to die, why did God let Stephen die right away? one of the most zealous young evangelists that ever come along bang he's gone they hit him with rocks in his head and he dies right there Lord Jesus receive my spirit why did God allow that it shook the church it helped them wake up maybe we were not shaken enough by the death of John of winter I don't know but God allowed Stephen to die and when Jesus went to the transfiguration and when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and wherever he went and had special people come with him, who went with him? Peter, James, and John. Read it. It's always those three, Peter, James, and John in that order. What happened to James? He had his head cut off. He didn't get to finish the work. Read it in, James, in, in Acts chapter 12. Then later, it says, a chapter or two later, you begin to read about another James, the Lord's brother who came along. But the original James was was killed. Why did God allow it? He doesn't give us some great big chapter in the Bible showing why he allows everything to happen. It probably shook the church. It helped them. Maybe James had run his race. He didn't need more time. And God could see the end from the beginning and thought this is better. Sometimes I thought that different ones that I've known that have died, maybe they were tender-hearted, had tremendous love for people, and if they'd lived to the end and seen all the other people fall away, that had, did fall away after them and were going to fall away, and all the terrible trials and tortures and terrible things happen, it would really hurt them and shake them. Maybe it was better for them. They made it. They had a right attitude. They're better off than we are. My wife Margie's better off than I am. She's sleeping at Mountain View Cemetery in Pasadena. She can't fall away. I can fall away, but she can't. I know that's not encouraging to some of you who want to live on. (laughs) But we all want to live on. I'm not, not anxious for death, but I've lived long enough. As I said, I have no complaints. Some of you young people, you would like to live on even more fervently. And I understand that. But sometimes it's better for some reasons known only to God that he heals some right now. He heals others later on in their life. And some he will not heal till the resurrection. And Margie was very dedicated and had faith and didn't have any huge problems. Her biggest problem was me. (laughs) She had to put up with me for over 20 years, and God let her go to sleep. And here I'm still here harassing people. (laughs) So better listen while God uses me to harass you because I want to wake you up. In the name of Jesus Christ, I hope that we can and move you to cry out to God and begin to get back to this basic thing of the gospel which was preaching the truth of the kingdom of God, healing the sick, and casting out demons. He keeps mentioning it over and over and over again. So this is what was done back at that time. Then you go to James chapter 5, if you would turn there at this point. Let's go to James 5, which is a source extremely familiar to all of you, I hope, should be, And beginning in verse 13, James writes, here's the Lord's brother, Christ's younger brother. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Rush to the doctor real quick. Forget about the elder. Forget about the ministers over there. They can't do anything. People have died. Leave them alone. God doesn't say that. He says, call the elders of the church. That's the first instruction from Almighty God. I would like to qualify that, and I think it would be all right for me to say this, but if there's an immediate emergency of a broken bone, if my son broke a bone, or a child broke a bone and was hurting, you might take him and have the bone set right now while they're screaming with pain, and then be anointed. But in any kind of a long range situation, like cancer or AIDS, or any serious sickness that's gonna last anyway, The best thing is to go first of all to Almighty God and show God you put Him first. God doesn't say that you're to give your fourth tithe to God. He says you give your first tithe. The first tenth of your money belongs to God. The first effort you're to make when you're really sick is to come to God. The first thing that you're supposed to do in any kind of trial is to turn to your Creator with all your heart with all your strength and might and all your soul, and cry out to God. And there are example after example of that in the Bible. And the men and the women who did that were the ones that were blessed. And the ones who tried to reason around that and did something else were not blessed. Read it in this book. It's there over and over again. So, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, and the indication throughout the Bible is olive oil is a symbol of God's Holy Spirit when it's used that way in the name, through the authority of Christ. And the prayer, get this, not just any prayer, but the prayer of faith. So faith must be involved. will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. He doesn't say he'll raise him up in this life in every case. He will raise him up eventually. Most of the time, it's in this life. But once in a while, he lets people sleep, raises them later. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. It may involve physical sins. He's been very careless, eating too much junk food, drinking too many Cokes and eating too much ice cream and all kinds of other junk food or maybe on drugs and liquor and hurting his body that way and smoking, breaking physical laws, or it in some cases could involve spiritual laws maybe he's been committing adultery and he's got a venereal disease because of that or whatever but it involves forgiveness of sin if he has committed sins it doesn't say he always has but if he has he will be forgiven then the next verse ties right in verse 18 verse 16 confess your trespasses one to another you see if you've made mistakes tell others I've been very careless with my body and I need your prayers and pray for one another why that you may be delivered from hell well that would be involved too sometimes but that you may be healed pray for one another regularly that you may be healed the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much I heard Mr. Herbert Armstrong say five or 15 times over the 36 years I knew him and he didn't say it all the time because he didn't say it even once a year but several times I heard him say it in public and ministerial conferences or whatever he said "Fellows," he said I think perhaps the greatest lack of in the prayer life of most of the people that I've known and since in the church is they don't put their hearts in their prayers and a lot of you probably have that as your problem I grew up, I used to, you know, as a little boy, I was taught by my father and mother to say my dead bedtime prayers. And daddy and mother, and often it would just be my dad because the mother had been with me all the day, but this was my chance for dad to do that. And I did do that for my children too because Elizabeth and Mike and Jim and Becca and David and John will always have to admit that. Almost every night I was there at their bedside and we would kneel down and say their prayers. But it wasn't this prayer. I was taught to say, now i lay me down to sleep. The Lord, I prayed the Lord my soul to keep and such and such. Then I'd say, bless daddy, bless mother, bless Patty, bless Catherine, bless Poochie. I had a dog named (laughs) Poochie. I would ask God's blessing on the dog. And little childlike things like that. And that's all I knew. As I got into junior high school and began to think more deeply and then even later in the last year of junior high school, began to hear Mr. Armstrong. Then I began to think about praying, and then I would kind of use sections of the Lord's Prayer and follow that pattern. And then I came to Ambassador College and heard Mr. Armstrong lead in prayer in church or at special occasions. And when he anointed me, and I heard other fine men pray in that way too, then I learned how to pray more fully. But it is, again, just repeating certain words. It's putting your heart in your prayers, putting your whole being in your prayers. And that's the thing, turning back here to, uh, no, I'm not going to keep here in James, but I I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to put in an extra scripture here. Back in Hebrews, you've turned from the previous book here in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 5, speaking of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christ, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when Christ was here on earth in the flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, meaning continual fervent prayers, with vehement cries and tears, vehement cries. Christ was shaking, and his big strong shoulders were probably shaking, and he was bawling. Father, help me! I have got to make it! If I don't make it, there won't be anyone else to be the Savior of the world. I feel this pull from Satan the devil. I can't give in. Help me! Behemoth cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he were a son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Even he came to learn certain things. And therefore, he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest when we get down on our knees and we lift up our hands to God and say, Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, the Father's right hand, please hear me. I've got this terrible thing coming, whatever it is. Or say maybe a demon is trying to bother me. These evil thoughts are bombarding my mind. Please lift this from me. Take it away. Christ has experienced that. He will take it away. He will hear your prayers. He's there at the Father's right hand. He lived through it. He experienced it. He understands. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. So we do need to understand we have that kind of high priest to help us and we must have faith and confidence in that. So we need faith, the prayer of faith. will save the sick and both ministers and members need faith, not just the minister. But the member does too. You turn back to Matthew 9. If you want to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, brethren, and uh, verse 9, chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, go back there again. you see many examples of this, but I want to read this to you. In chapter 9 of Matthew... He talks about how in verse 27, two blind men followed Christ, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. In Matthew 9, verse 28, And when he'd come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And then Jesus, the Son of God, as as they said that, he touched their eyes, saying, Uh, in other words he laid hands on them notice he laid hands on them and said according to your faith not my faith Christ had faith according to your faith be it unto you so we are to build in this church brethren an atmosphere of faith we've got to do that we really got to do that we must do that because frankly it doesn't just involve healing it involves being delivered from the trials and tests, the persecutions and all kinds of things because Satan is going to try to get at you. He will try to disillusion you. He will try to grab you out of this church if, if he can. He will try to get you away from God. I used to think that Brickett Wood was such a wonderful place because it was the college Mr. Armstrong specialized in visiting. And it was his special college. Big Sandy seemed to be more Ted's college because he helped start it more and spent more time there. It was more outdoorsy. And, you know, athletics were stressed more and stuff. And Brickett was more cultured, and Mr. Armstrong liked that more. And neither one of them had a lot of converted people, we found out later. But after Brickett would closed, I was right there, the summer of 1975. And I was astonished, and I must not name names, I'm tempted to, but... Uh, one of the leading men over a big department fell right away. Another leading man with a doctor's degree fell right away. Another leading man, and just go through different ones I thought were very strong, stable individuals. They fell away, they fell away, they fell away. I thought they were leaders. I thought they had the fear of God. And right away, I mean within a few weeks, some of them had a job working on God's Sabbath day. Suddenly Friday night did not equate to God's holy Sabbath day. Bang, I'm out of here. No job, no church. So when the college closed and they quit getting their salary check, they left right away. God will try to, will allow you to be tested and Satan will be there and try to grab you out. If you see people who are not healed, you'll use that to put in God's face. If some minister offends you and says something you don't like, you use that excuse. The minister might be 100% right. You're still going to get your feelings hurt sometimes. Maybe the minister is partly wrong. Well, what if the minister is partly wrong? I've been partly wrong hundreds of times. Mr. Armstrong was partly wrong hundreds of times. And he said so. Some of you older brethren, you may remember that Mr. Davis and Mrs. Apartin. I, I hope you will. But what Mr. Armstrong said in public, he said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. But God has never allowed me to make a mistake that would destroy the whole work. And he didn't but he was human. He didn't mean great big mistakes like adultery or murder, but he would make mistakes sometimes. That's not the point. The point is what God says. Let God be true and every man a liar, as you read in the book of Romans. Men will make mistakes. So you have got to have the fear of God and believe God and walk and live by faith in regard to healing, walk and live by faith in child-rearing, walk and live by faith in your marriage, you are bound by God to that person till death do you part. And you're to honor that commitment. You're to honor that covenant. And we've got to do that, each of us. My wife is so weak, she hardly can get up or move about and things are going wrong and she has this heavy waste basket she calls the, the uh, I forget what we call it, like the vomit bucket or something like that. But anyway... She's like that. Am I to leave her because she's all messed up? No. She's taken care of me many times when I was sick. You stay with your mate no matter what. You are bound by God in a covenant because you love that other person. You love them deeply. You better love them deeply. And because you have made a covenant before God to love them as part of you and to picture Christ and the church. And so you stay right there because that is real to you and you walk and live by faith in that way, knowing that is going to work out good no matter what. You believe it. You live it. You know it. And you must do that. So, brethren, walking by faith involves lots of things beside healing. Many, every aspect of your life, you need to walk by faith. So we've got to learn to do that. So anyway, uh, let's go on now to back to Mark, if you would, The the Gospel of Mark and verse chapter 6, if you would. Mark uh, chapter 6. I'm going to better get my watch off so I know where I am. I'm going to run way over here. Mark chapter 6, it says, Jesus came back to his own country and his disciples followed him. And then Mark 6 verse 2, when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach and they were astonished and they said, Where does this young man get all this stuff? How does he act, how does he act so smart? They got sarcastic probably. Verse 3, Is this not the carpenter? Notice he doesn't say the son of the carpenter, as it said sometimes. By this time, his parents, his father was dead. Christ or probably took the role of the father, supported his younger brothers and his mother, and was the leader in the home. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. She is not the virgin Mary. She had at least six other children. Four sons named here and two daughters. He had more than one sister. His sisters are here and they were offended. But Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. When you're right in your own house, they see all your mistakes. If you belch at the table or spill food or rude or have a problem or kick the cat and slam the door, as I said, they see all your little human faults and that gets in the way of them having that respect. They've seen you grow up. I remember when I'd been an evangelist for a few years in Worldwide and I went back home to Joplin, Missouri. My mother was only in her, I don't know what she was, in 50s or 60s. And uh, some of her friends, or most of her friends were still alive, her bridge club friends. And some of them said, well, Roderick, you said, I used to change your diapers. Oh, oh this <laughs> how could she say, how could oh, this woman know all about me? She changed my diapers. How could they feel that I was a great minister of God? I was this little messy kid. You see, they have a harder time having the profound respect for you when they know your human traits and your human faults. Every man has had to have his diaper changed, including Jesus of Nazareth. He was fully human. That did not make any difference. It's a matter of God in you, Christ in you. So he could do no mighty work there. Verse 5, get it. It didn't say he wouldn't. He could, obviously, uh, or couldn't, because it was not God's will to act powerfully in an atmosphere of disbelief, in an attitude of cynicism, an attitude of sarcasm that apparently was there. He could, even the Son of God, could do no mighty work there except he did a little bit, God allowed, for the sake of the people that did have humility apparently, except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And when you turn back to Matthew 13, verse 58, turn there real quick if you want to, and he said he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. It says in Mark's account, he marveled at their unbelief, but Matthew makes it even cleaner under God's inspiration. He could do no mighty work. Why? Because of their, not Christ's unbelief, their unbelief. M- Matthew 13, verse 58. So you do need to understand that, how important it is to have an atmosphere of faith. We in this church need to cry out to God to build within this local church right here, brethren, in Charlotte, and to ask God to build within our church down in Fort Lauderdale, our church in Atlanta, our church up in Boston and New York and over in Kansas City, out in Los Angeles, out in Sydney and Melbourne and Perth and Adelaide, Australia, out in Auckland, New Zealand, Johannesburg, and Cape Town, South Africa, London, Birmingham, all over the world, all over the world, an atmosphere of faith, much more than we have had as a whole. We need to cry out for that, and I ask you, brethren around the world and all the churches hearing this, please put this first. This is near the top of the list. There are more important things, but not many, because this atmosphere of faith permeates every aspect of your life. And we need to emphasize certain things more than others at certain times. And as God's servant, I'm just telling you at this time, because we've had all these things come on us, we need this, and we ought to build this, we ought to concentrate on this, building an atmosphere of faith. Even the Son of God could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. Wow, how important it is to have a whole atmosphere of faith Turn to Luke 18 now, Luke chapter 18, and here is a familiar story about this, that men always ought to pray and not to faint. And this judge was not, was hard-headed old guy. He did not fear men or regard God. But he said, verse 5, Yet because this widow troubles me, a widow kept coming and coming and saying, Avenge me, help me, judge, help me. She just wouldn't give up. He says, lest I I I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. He wasn't a monster, at least. He didn't say, I'm going to kill her, or put her in jail for that. He just said, she's going to wear me out. This woman is going to wear me out. I better, I better take care of her need right now. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. In other words, if an unjust judge like this carnal, hard-headed old guy was willing to hear her, How much more will our merciful Heavenly Father who loves us, who gave His Son to die for us, how much more will He hear us if we keep coming and keep coming and cry out to Him and never give up? How much more shall not God avenge His own elect who cry out? He didn't say quietly pray. Read it. And you'll probably read some of the commentaries. And I've talked to some of our men who spoke Hebrew and Greek. And I know Mr. Mordecai Joseph, when that word is used in the Old Testament, he said the historians acknowledge that they, you know, the Jews are emotional people. They would cry out passionately, put their whole being in it. Those who cry out night and day to him, though he bears long with them. As I said, Jesus must have done crying out with fervent cries and tears, vehement cries and tears, yelling in a sense, not to show off, but just your whole being shaking. Father, help me for you many to the depths of your being. So I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Yet when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The implication is there won't be much. Will he really find faith? God help us to be sure he will find faith right here in this building among you and among you people in Johannesburg and Toronto and London and Sydney and elsewhere around the world. Among all of us in God's church. We'd better find faith among us. We are doing the work. We've been able to do more with less. We're grateful for that. But we've got to have faith and more faith. And brother, not just for the work's sake, that's one of the least important perhaps. But most of all, because of our relationship with God that will affect every part of our lives. But if we have that faith and build that atmosphere of faith and dozens and scores more people are healed and they're healed more quickly, then what will happen? It's going to get out. We're not going to try to publish it, but it will get out through the greater church of God and finally the evangelical community and finally the world will pick it up. That will be, just as it was for Jesus Christ, a calling card, so to speak, that Almighty God is in this work. And true servants of God are on this earth. There is a real God. And He has true servants here who are really doing things that cannot be denied. That was the pattern. Not something I'm inventing. That was the pattern in the Bible. They didn't have any television or radio You know, Philip would come in and start to heal people and cast out demons, and people would hear about it, and they'd start coming. Same thing with Jesus Christ, of course. Think about it. What a tremendous impact it would have to help increasing thousands and eventually millions of human beings to know God and to know His power. If you and I pray on our knees tonight, tomorrow, and begin to study and feed on this book and build faith in a way we have never done, And build an atmosphere of faith in that church and that atmosphere results in more power in the work, more spiritual strength in our lives to overcome, and in physical healings and the casting out of unclean spirits. And there are going to be a lot more unclean spirits in the future, as we know. So we need to counteract Satan's faith-destroying crusade. Satan the devil is out big time to destroy faith. He gets you watching TV, you see all this watered-down nonsense and fornication and adultery and lying and cheating. It's all a big joke. Laugh at it. Laugh at it. They have a way of making fun of all those things that make you seem interesting and funny. Not funny to God. The Internet shows just complete nakedness and sexual perversion just out there, just push a button. It's right in front of the eyes of your teenage boys. They don't have to search for it anymore. It's just right there, and they all know where it is. All these other foul, rotten magazines. I'm glad they didn't exist when I was growing up. Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler, whatever their names are, a whole bunch of them now I've never probably heard of. They're all out there. The teenage boys get hold of them. Well, God made us male and female. That ought not to be some great big revelation, but every teenage boy, he thinks he's made a great discovery. Like Einstein, he's discovered sex. So what? Half the human race is male, half is human and female, but they try to get a perverted way of dealing with that and it bugs their mind. So pornography is growing exponentially. We discussed that in the conference a little bit too, even among the worldly ministers. Pornography has affected thousands of them, many articles about it in Christianity Today magazine, World magazine, these other so-called Christian magazines. They admit that from those who don't know God, they're often overcome by it. Satan is busy to destroy faith. So, brethren, we must be in a crusade to build that faith. Notice in Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. That's in Romans 10. As you hear the Word of God, as you read the Word of God, as you feed on God and feed on Christ, you will build faith. Notice back in John, if you turn to the Gospel of John, And again, I've used this so often, but I'll keep using it. And if some of you get tired, that will be too bad for you. He said here in John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life And I will raise him up. When? At the last day. For my flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. So it really is. It's the strength that comes from God. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Abides in me. And I in him. As you feed on this book. And drink in of it. Meditate on it. Turn it over and over in your mind. Picture these things. You're right there with Christ. You see this. You're part of it. You make it part of you. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me, if you feed on Christ, if you feed on this book, you will grow in faith. I promise you, faith will come into you as you feed on the Bible through the help of God's Spirit and have a right attitude of being willing to be taught by it, corrected by it. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives the life. The flesh profits nothing. You're not going to get any permanent help from television or these other media. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words are like the law of gravity. They're living, moving principles. They work and nothing can stop that power. So, brethren, we've got to tune out TV. We've got to tune out the Internet. We've got to tune out this world with all of its rotten, foul things coming into our mind to destroy our faith and make a big issue of that and drink in of God's Word and let God's Word permeate our heart and our lives and then we will be blessed in every way in our life, in our marriage, our family, our children, our health, our healing, the in the coming terrible trials, the persecutions, it will come as we seek God's kingdom. Notice back in 1 John, if you turn back to 1 John now, First Epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus said through His apostle, whatever we ask, we receive from Him, we get answers to our prayers. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. So we, if we disobey that way of life, we then will not get answers to our prayers. So if we water down God's way of life, it's going to hurt our faith. Disobedience is a great destroyer of faith. It's a great destroyer of faith. If you disobey God, you feel guilty, and you can't have faith in the same way. Turn to Hebrews now, the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, brethren. Hebrews chapter 11. Here in the book of Hebrews we find these powerful verses, and I wish I could read it all, but in verse 1, says faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. If you already have it, you don't have to hope for it, but faith is the assurance that what God has said He will do. It's the evidence of things not seen. That becomes your evidence. It says in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe, you've got to really know God, believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who half-heartedly drift through life. No. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Each of us individually has to learn to keep seeking God. Each morning as you get up, cry out to God, use me this day, help me walk with God, help me reflect Christ, help me believe what you say. Give me faith. Give our church faith. Please guide us. Teach us. Rebuke and chasten us all. Cleanse and purge us. Teach us the lessons we need to learn. But then help us to trust in you, to walk and live by faith. So we've got to do that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we've got to build that faith. And so he describes the men and women of faith down through time. And then he said in verse 13, verse 13, these all died. What? God told Abraham, I'm making you a, a leader of many nations. And Abraham could have looked around as a smart lick and said, well, where are they, Lord? I don't see any of them. He didn't do that. He died never having received the promise. He looked to God. He knew that God would do what he said. They all died. Mr. Armstrong in his powerful booklet on healing points out that he prayed all night all night long when his father was dying and asked God to heal his father. And it blew his mind, as we say, when God let his father die. His father was about 70 years old, though, but he didn't fully understand it. As he meditated, he fasted, he thought, and Mr. Arms did have a powerful sense of just digging and thinking, and I've seen him do it and watched him do it over months he would get on a subject and never let go of it until he got it straight. He came to realize that, yes, God heals primarily in this life. But there are times God will heal. He does not a liar. Mr. Armstrong anointed his father, prayed for him powerfully. God will make him whole. But when and how? God does not tell us how and God does not tell us when. He will heal him in the resurrection. So some of our loved ones are healed. They will be healed. Nothing can stop it. I'm sure Carl McNair will be healed. John O'Gwen will be healed but in the resurrection. And they will be whole, and we will see them again. And that is healing. That's the way God looks at it. He doesn't give all of us everything right now, so don't let that hurt your faith. The vast majority of examples are healing in this life. But sometimes God says, no, wait. He doesn't say, no. He says, no, wait. He will heal later, and that still is healing. Don't ever forget that. Then back in chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You've got to keep that confidence. You've got to keep that faith that God is alive, that God is there, that God is your rock and your Redeemer. He will never forget you, never forsake you, for you have need of endurance. You've got to keep on so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. Yes, he will come and will not tarry Now the just shall live by faith. And brethren, that's the key point. In every phase of our lives, in our marriage, our child-rearing, our job, even in regard to healing, every phase of our lives and all the other parts of our lives, you can name the just shall live by faith. You find what God says, you do it God's way, you know and you know that you know That it is going to work out well. If you do it God's way. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back. My soul has no pleasure in him. God does not want us to draw back. But we are not of those who draw back. to, To the perdition or destruction. But of those who believe. To the saving of the soul. So it involves your very salvation. To have that attitude. Of really learning to trust in God. In every single phase of your life. So brethren, I beseech you in the name of Jesus Christ, please make it an issue. Let's together as a church get in a crusade to build within this church, the living church of God, a genuine atmosphere of faith. Study about faith. Pray about faith. Talk about faith. Pray for each other. Cry out that God would put within each of us and all of us faith and courage, the very faith of Jesus Christ and the faith encouraged to go through the tests of physical trials and sickness and the trials of persecution and harassment, all the other things that are going to come. We have to walk and live by faith. Let's build that atmosphere with all our heart and all our soul.